of your word that has been preserved by the Holy Spirit down through the centuries. And we ask that he, the author of the scripture, would teach our hearts tonight, that we may know you better, have a bigger vision of who you are and what you have done, and have an idea of how you love us according to your plan. And you have a carefully thought out plan that controls all of history. And we know that we have a big God when we see these kinds of footprints of yours down through the corridors of time. We ask that you would illuminate our hearts tonight through Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. If you'll uh, turn in the Bible uh, tonight to Genesis 10, uh, we're going to look at Genesis 10 and 11 and then continue our background for these chapters. For those of you who maybe are growing a little impatient with some of the background material, let me assure you that it's quite essential to put some of the pieces together of early Genesis. Because inevitably what happens is that in the church, Genesis and other portions of the Bible are taught in such a way that they don't seem to integrate with history. Then what happens is that we'll have some Christian uh, absorb the worldview around them in a history course or in a discussion or in an article or something like that. And then, because that scene doesn't seem to fit the scriptures, then all kinds of doubts come in about, well, gee, how can the scriptures be authoritative when, in fact, there's this, this constant fluctuation and tension. So this is why we're spending quite a bit of time. Last year, we spent a lot of time going into the background. There are tremendously important basic ideas. And as I said the first evening when we were started uh, this fall, that there's a simple elementary principle that operates. Either you will let the Word of God interpret the world around you, or you are going to let the world, world around you interpret the Word of God. It's going to be one way or the other, and it can't be a mishmash. It'll always be one way or the other. So this is why we're being quite careful to point out not just the pieces of direct text, but also some of the work that godly scholars have done who have submitted their hearts and their minds to the text of Scripture and looked out upon the world and said, well, now how can we, what can we say about the world in the light of the Scripture? Tonight, um, we're going to just take a quick overview at the beginning here of Genesis 10 and Genesis 11, because as you can see, uh, the last verse of Genesis 9 uh, kind of finishes off with the story of Noah. That was the flood. We, we covered that last year. Now, in Genesis 10 and 11, if you turn all the way over to the end of chapter 11, you'll see that beginning in Genesis 12, you have the call of Abraham. And that's really the beginning of the Jewish race and the nation Israel, which characterizes, of course, the rest of the Bible and the rest of history. So these two chapters, chapter 10 and chapter 11, form a bridge. And they take us from the flood to Abraham. And that's normally the way it's taught. Well, what I want to do is I want to spend a little time to stimulate your thinking about the material of Genesis 10 and 11 because it's in Genesis 10 and 11 where we have the data that tell us how civilizations, nations arose. All of us have come 
from the DNA of Noah, his sons, and Noah's daughters-in-law. That means that every race, every culture, has its origin in Genesis 10 11. This is the answer to the missionary who goes into a continent and it's often said by secular anthropologists that, oh, these Christian missionaries are dangerous because they distort culture because they're bringing in a Western religion into the East or their Western religion somewhere else or they're disturbing the third world cultures and this and that. As though the gospel of Jesus Christ is some sort of foreign thing that is utterly and completely unrelated to these to the fountainheads of these cultures. But there again is where either the Word of God interprets the world or the world will interpret the Word of God. Now, if we're going to look at cultures and we're going to ask the question about missionaries going into culture XYZ, we've got to ask, what does the Bible say about the origins of culture XYZ? Don't just talk about the gospel going to it as sort of a target, but let's think about what the Scripture is saying about that culture. And that's what Genesis 10:11. This is the background for every world culture that exists. It's also providing the justification for actual missionary and exclusivistic teaching of Scripture. That is, why is the Scripture so dogmatic that one subset of the human race seems to have a corner on the truth? It seems so utterly undemocratic in a, in a modern era like ours to make that claim. The audacity of Jesus to say that I am the way and the truth and the life and no man comes to the Father except by me. How arrogant. That's how it strikes the modern person. And that's because the modern person has come up in an age when everything's democratic. Everybody has one vote. All cultures are equal. And there's no choice. There's no uh, patterns to the culture. But what we want to see is in this rise of civilization into which God called or out of which God called Abraham and into which he wants to propagate the gospel, we have to do a, a thorough background study on, on where we all have come. So in Genesis 10, verse 1, you'll see that the three sons of Noah are featured there, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Everyone else descends from those. There's four men mentioned in 10, verse 1. And there's four women. That's eight people. And those eight people are the fountainhead of all races, all cultures, and all continents for all time. There isn't any more genetic material than just those eight people. So that means that if you trace your family back, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, your great-great-grandfather, and all the way back, you will link up, ultimately, if you could have the data, the genealogical data, you would link up with these names in Genesis 10. These are your grandfathers and grandmothers. This is where we have come from, these people. This is Noah's family. And Genesis 10 is divided, for example, verse 2, you'll see. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, if you mark it out, Verse 2 starts with the sons of Japheth and lists them. Then beginning in verse 6, you'll see the sons of Ham, and then they are listed. And that goes down to verse 20. Then if you look at verse 21, then it is Shem. And so we have the uh, all the way down to the end of that. And then in verse 32, at the end of chapter 10, there's a summary statement. 
These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations. Out of these nations were separated on earth after the flood. Out of these, the nations were separated. So we have a dispersion. So every, whether it's the Eskimo, the Australian Aboriginal, uh, whether it is the Chinese, whether it is the Japanese, whether it is the Poly Polynesians, uh, whether it's the South Americans, whether it's the Africans, whether it's the Europeans, doesn't make a particle of difference. They all come out of this table, if we are to believe Scripture. Now, we can kiss Scripture off as a, as a sweet little story, but if we're serious, and Jesus was quite serious about the way he took the Scriptures, if we're to follow Jesus' example and take the Scripture exactly the way he did, then we have to take this seriously. Now, if you look at Genesis 11, there's a story of uh, Shinar, and it's the story there of the, of the uh, Babel. And we're going to get into that as a profound event. If you look at the way the Bible is written, uh, if you go back, for example, to Genesis 9, and you remember how God was speaking to, to um, Noah, and then you notice that little, what we call, section of pericope from verse 20 to verse 27. It's that little vineyard incident. And you wonder, what is this? You know, we have this big, long narrative, and then all of a sudden, smack dab in the middle of it, Noah's getting drunk in a vineyard and running around nude. So, what has that got to do with history? Apparently, it's got a lot to do with history because the Holy Spirit chose to make that a crucial event. Can you think of the number of events that must have happened in Noah's life, a man who lived for five or six centuries? I think you could write a lot of material about his life. But isn't it striking that after the flood, when he lived 350 years or so, wasn't it, say, uh, yeah, nine, um, 350 years in verse 28, he lived 350 years after the flood, and only one event of his life is mentioned, when he was drunk. Now, why is that? Because, as we said, that incident reveals the flaw in all civilized society. And, what it, and we, we spend time on that. Well, now you come to Genesis 11, and there's a similar thing. We've gotten through all the descendants, but then all of a sudden, in the middle of it, in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 11, there's this other strange event. All about Nimrod, all about the people coming together to make a big, tall tower that will reach unto heaven. And then, verse 8 and 9, the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel. And by the way, that's the word that you still use today. We have an English verb, Babel. The English verb, Babel, is a direct transliteration of this word. It's a case where the English language has imported a Semitic word. So, the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, in verse 10, after that event... Which of the three sons is mentioned? See, watch what's going on here. I'm trying to give you in a few minutes here a broad brush of two chapters. We're looking at civilization, the origin of civilization according to Scripture. We have three sons. We have this mysterious event. And then all of a sudden, beginning in verse 10, all the other two sons drop out. And we have from this point forward concentration on one and only one of the three sons, Shem. And then as we concentrate on this one, one uh, son, something happens in the text, because from verse 10 forward, 
For every son, there's a detailed analysis of his age at which he gave birth to the next patriarch, the age after that, and then it's summed. Now, it's a formula that you'll see, and it's precisely this formula in the text that argues that this text is to be taken literally. The human authors of the text must have intended that this be taken literally without gaps. Why? Because you have this formula. You have so-and-so was born, he lived X years, he gave birth to the next in line, he lived Y years after that, and then, as if that we couldn't add, and all the days were Z. X plus Y equals Z. And that formula is used on every single patriarch. Now, oops, thank you, D. And it would help if I focused it. Yeah, yell at me if you can't see things. Um, so we have this formula. And this formula locks up the flexibility we have interpreting the text. This isn't a piece of rubber that can be stretched any way you want it. There are certain controls in the language and in the very structure of the text. Well, then, what are we making an issue out of this? Well, several things. If you look at this, and by now you should have read, read over this material, you'll see in verse 10, uh, verse 11, where he says, um, Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Parkshad. And then it goes on, and he, he's living 500 years, and then in verse 13, the next guy is 403, and then you come down to 16. Eber lived uh, 40, 34 years, and then 430 years, and then so forth and so on. So we have a diminishing age. And if you are an imaginative and you have a piece of graph paper, and you take the time to do a little exercise I suggested, and you plot each one of these men, this is the x-axis, and on the y-axis, you plot the age at death, you get something like this. There's a little bit of a gap, and it comes like this, and if you draw a line of best fit, you get one of these, what we call exponential decay curves, that's very fascinating and holds the key to understanding history because that is an interesting case, and most engineers or science students will recognize it immediately. You get these kinds of curves when you move from one steady state to another. This is what we discussed last year. For example, you take a glass of hot water and you drop ice cubes in it and take temperature every so often. That's the curve you get. If you take uh, the discharge of electricity across a capacitor and you, you could slow it down, you'd get that kind of a curve. Um, whatever, whatever area of science you get, when you move from one thing that's relatively steady and then you have a sudden change, the system takes time to adjust to that. And it usually does it in physical systems by means of what we call an exponential decay curve. What is remarkable is that when you take the data from this chapter, you get an exponential decay curve. Now, it's not my imagination. This is not arbitrary. Prove it for yourself. And the easy way to prove it's an exponential decay curve is to go to the store and get log paper, log graph paper, and plot the points out and draw a line through it. And you'll find it's a straight line. So that's an exponential decay curve. So this is just a feature of the text. It's just there. So now the question is, what do we make of this? 
Well, we said last year that that is, plus a lot of other things, is evidence that strange things were going on. And one of the things uh, we mentioned that we have a case where before the flood, it seems like the universe was structured in a certain way, and after the flood, the universe was structured in a certain way. There's a gap here. Something happened. There was a big discontinuity, and we said the New Testament commentary on the Old Testament in Second Peter treats this as a universal cosmic event, not something just pertaining to the Mesopotamian River Valley on planet Earth. So, let me just review from last time because it carries over some things. This presses us as Christians who believe in the Bible. This gives us a tremendous problem because it doesn't allow enough time to fit things in that we have been taught. This time interval from this point of the flood on down to, say, Abraham. Abraham, we can backdate to about 2000 B.C. We're not talking any more than five to six to seven hundred years here. That's all the time we have. And in those five to seven hundred years, every major civilization has to have arisen. The Ice Age has to have occurred. And um, numerous events have to go on during this time period. And it's not because we're trying to create a controversy. It's just because that's the way the text is. So we have to look at what we're dealing with. And, and just by way of background, again, from last time, let me remind you of one thing that we covered toward the end of the course last year when I mentioned that when you deal with time, the problem always is if you haven't got eyewitness data to an ancient event, you do not have direct observational data. So the only way you can measure time is by assuming certain things to be constant. That's the only way you can work an equation. You've got to have constants in the equation. We gave as the key example, if you were, had your video camera going in the Garden of Eden five minutes after God created Adam, and you trained your video camera on Adam, and I came along after that and asked you how old was Adam, and you told me five minutes, I'd say, you're, you're out of your mind. Your video cassette just shows me a 30-year-old man. How can he be only five minutes? And that is the nature of the problem. When you study history, if you don't have eyewitness data, you can't endlessly create constants. And remember, toward the end of the time last year when we were going through this, I mentioned things like this. Here are some clocks. And what this physicist who got this together did is he just simply said, okay, let's assume things are constant. Now look at the discordant ages. Now we have all these things about, quote, scientific methods. Well, now here's what scientific methods produce when you let them loose. Particularly notice this one. Population growth. Recorded history. Now what's interesting about these figures, these population growth figures, is that the population growth on Earth can be roughly calculated by looking at the Jew. We know there were no Jews before 2000 B.C. Since we have a starting point, and we know what the Jewish population is today, and you can't argue that the Jews are an unusual group that overpopulated the world. They've been almost decimated three or four times in their historic existence. The Jew has been the subject of massive genocide, so if anything, his population growth rate is slow, not fast. 
and we can extrapolate then the growth rate of the Jew from 2000 BC on up to the present day. It also turns out that if you do that backwards, assuming the total population of the earth, you come out with a figure about 3000 BC. So point is that population statistics have a, cause a dilemma for people who think the human race has been around for a long time. If the human race was around for a long time, we'd be five stories thick, crawling all over each other. And there are not that many people here. So, therefore, why aren't there people? If man has been around for millions of years, he had plenty of time to reproduce. He has not, and so, therefore, the population growth rate is an argument for a young human race. And we show these others, the non-equilibrium of carbon-14, we went in the helium content of the atmosphere. You get all kinds of dates here. And of course, the propensity, because in the evolutionary worldview, you're, you're having to support the idea of the continuity of nature. You always pick the oldest clock. And then we said it's not just terrestrial data, but it's also clock descriptions inside our own solar system. For example, one of the most powerful evidences there is cometary lifetimes. Comets decay very rapidly. And the evidence would indicate that from cometary uh, things, cometary um, decay of 6,000 years, no more. Then we could go outside of the solar system to things like this. For example, one of the most powerful arguments is spiral galaxies. Spiral galaxies are supposed to, you've seen these pictures in the astronomy magazines of these arms, the question is that since we know the, spiral, the rotation of the galaxies, if they were sitting there for billions of years, they would have wound up. The galaxy wouldn't be geometrically shaped that way. So we have a little problem. So wherever we go, it's not quite so airtight as we're led to believe. Of course, this is the kind of information that usually is carefully excised from most discussions. What we're then dealing with and as another piece of evidence I gave you last time, one of the strange events is this particular element. When radioactive decay elements decay, if you have a little point there, which would be a, uh, an element decaying, when it decays, it sends energy out. And if that happens to be buried in a rock matrix, it leaves burn marks. For example, here's what Precambrian mica looks like. There's some burn marks in Precambrian mica. It's where somebody took a slice of the rock, cut it, and those, ra those radiuses are the termination points of alpha particles and other particles out of the nucleus on decay. So you can identify what these elements were, and it turns out what's interesting is that some elements have very short half-life. One of them here, polonium-218, has a half-life of three minutes. Now, what's fascinating about this is that polonium sometimes can be a daughter element of a previous element, but other times it starts out by itself. And this particular work by uh, Mr. Gentry shows that here you have the strange spectacle in Precambrian rock, the oldest rock on Earth, with these burn marks from an element that has only a half-life of three minutes. Now, this is a very interesting question because if the Earth really was molten and took millions of years to cool down, this thing would have exhausted its radioactivity long before the rock became cold, and there wouldn't have been left any burn marks. However, the burn marks are there, which shows clearly that the polonium decayed after the rock was cold and hard and fixed. 
So then the case then is, do we have polonium being generated ex nihilo and then suddenly died out in three minutes or what? So there are evidences around. It's just obviously because of the philosophical worldview of the of surrounding culture that carefully keeps this material away because they have a problem with it. What we have in summary here is two basic ways of handling the, this data. One is that you have a very short time scale given in the Bible where you have nucleogenesis of the chemical elements very quickly, the creation of the Precambrian granites, all of this activity happening before the present time of less than 6,000 years versus the picture we all get from our educational experience. You have the Big Bang, stars form, supernova, the Earth forms, and then you have the Precambrian granites over here forming after all the elements were here. So this is all by way of introduction tonight to a problem that we have to deal with that we're coming up in the text, and that is the problem of during Genesis 10 and Genesis 11, what was going on climatologically? How are we to deal with the issue of glaciation? Now, if you turn for a moment to Genesis 13.10, there's an interesting point there. It's going to figure prominently in the, the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But one of the backgrounds to the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob stories is a climatic shift that's going on. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 10, we have a famine, and it forces them to go down to Egypt. And that creates all kinds of problems. And then later on, there's an even greater famine that causes Jacob to go down, and Joseph rescues him, and so forth and so on. If you look carefully at the text, the details of the text, the text reports to us that all nations, A-L-L, were suffering from the famine. Not just Palestine. All nations. So here in the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob cycle of stories, we're seeing this tremendous famine take place. What's very interesting is that in... I, I was referring to Genesis 12.10 instead of Genesis 13.10. In Genesis 13.10, you have a well-watered situation in Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, now, if you look at that today, you see that it's not too well-watered. It's, it's the Dead Sea. So Lot picked out that area. It wasn't a desert when Abraham was walking around. It was a well-watered place. These guys were ranchers. Now, granted, ranchers can run their businesses out in somewhat arid conditions, but you've got to give a guy a break. There's no ranchers going out in the Negev. Okay, so let's look further in Genesis. Genesis 41, 54. This is that passage I told you about in the text where it says there was famine all over the world. Seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph said, and there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So the backdrop of this is there's these, you have it starting off with Egypt and Sodom and Gomorrah area well watered. Watered enough for businessmen to be attracted to take their investments. I mean, herds to a rancher is what capital is to a manufacturer or an owner of a business. That's his capital investment. He's not going to stick it out there in a place that can't sustain his capital. 
there goes his business if he tries it. So these guys were picking out areas for their ranching businesses that were well watered. Now let's turn to the book of Job, because as I said, that's halfway through the Old Testament. You look at the book of Job for a second. We're going to come back to Job several times, because Job appears to have been written during the time of Genesis 10 and 11. Israel isn't in existence. The exodus hasn't occurred. You have a case where there's these strange notices in it. So Genesis, Job 38, verse 29, when God talks to Job, which we covered last time in a little bit, in the issue of the fall and suffering. In Job, chapter 38, verse 29, we have this address to Job, who lives in Arabian, what is now Arabian desert. And Job, in chapter 38, verse 29, says, from whose, or God says to Job, from whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven who has given it birth, Water becomes hard like stone, and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. Now, the word deep there means big bodies of water, and they're frozen. When did this happen in the latitude of Arabia? So, we have these hints throughout the Bible of a climatic extreme. Now, we want to work on this a little bit tonight, and a little bit in the notes that you have um, that I, I, gave, I handed out. If you will now look at the notes for today and page 6, we're going to examine this question of the Ice Age. And the reason for it is because there's evidence of glaciation and it's always said to be millions of years and this and that. Here's another classic example, like I showed you last time where some Christians have taken the... Remember the guy I showed you who went around and read all the geologic literature and asked the simple question, where's the geologic column? So he plotted it all out and he found about 3 or 4% of the Earth's surface had it. And this is what is being used to promote an absolute view of Earth history. Well, now, one of the problems, here's, the, here's what, um, to start the problem off, there's a map of the Northern Hemisphere. The area that's in gray is the area where their glaciers reached a maximum. If you look carefully, it came down into the Middle West, far south of Chicago, down into the Ohio Valley, all the way into New York State and northern Pennsylvania. And by glaciers, we mean solid sheets of ice that were powerful enough to move mountains, to plow up material ahead of them, and then melt and leave it there. This is the kind of, of awesome cold, accumulated snow and ice that must have gone on. The question is, from a, from a uniformitarian point of view, this is the non-Christian, the secular view, is how do you explain the Ice Age? Now, there's a real problem here. There's never been an explanation for the Ice Age. Everybody talks about it. Everybody says, oh, they were confident we had four or five glaciations in each one 100,000 years and so forth. Excuse me. How did it get started? Now, here's the problem of why the Ice Age, scientists have always had a problem trying to get it started. They believe it happened, but they can't figure out how it got started. There's a little principle of physics involved. And that one is that if you look at temperature, if I have my little chart here, 
If you look at temperature and ask the question of how much water can air hold at different forms of temperature, it turns out that cold air doesn't hold much water. You've heard the expression, it's too cold to snow. Well, it does get that way. In central Canada, you basically have a desert in the, in the wintertime because you can't get snow out of cold air. Here's why. Down here, this is the temperature, zero degrees, minus 10, minus 20, minus 30, minus 40. And you can see, in terms of water vapor capacity, very little. Now what happens is when you heat it up, you can't mass it. That's why it gets so humid in hot weather, because the hot air can hold so much water. The problem that they have found is, in starting the ice age, to get the ice, you need to do what? To the temperature. You need to lower it. You've got to lower it enough so it doesn't melt in the summer, right? What happens if you lower the temperature? Now you've lowered the capacity to carry, uh, to carry water. Now where do you get the snow from that makes the glaciers? Very simple problem. It's a very complicated one, and they have tried and tried and tried to figure out how do you do this, because one principle is fighting the other one. You can't get it started this way. For example, here is a case where they tried in a computer to see if I can see this here, generate an ice age with dropping the temperature. And if I can just see, get my stuff in order here. Let me see. Okay. Here is what they tried to do by lowering the temperature and ask the computer model to do what would you do, how would you, where would you show a glaciation if we dropped and get a load of the drops here. If we chill the atmosphere by 10 to 12 degrees C, that's 24 degrees Fahrenheit, average temperature. That's a massive cooling. What would happen? How could you, could you get the glaciers started? Well, you cool the air, there's not enough snow, and this is the little glaciation, the maximum glaciation you can get. But that's not enough, because the ice age, the glaciers went all the way down here. So the cooler you make it to keep the glacier, the less water you have to make the glacier. Well then, what's so interesting is that the Bible has an answer to that problem. But people aren't ready to accept the answer because they don't like the time question. Now if you look at your notes on page three, five, at the bottom, the creationist meteorologist uh, Ord, I'll read that quote if you follow me carefully. This is the condition after, hypothesized, after the flood. The picture emerges at the end of the flood catastrophe. Is a, the earth is a barren world with no trees, no plants, no animals or birds except in the ark. All air-breathing, land-based animals had died and were fossilized or were in the process of being fossilized in the sediments of the flood. The newly formed stratosphere would contain a thick shroud of volcanic dust and aerosols due to the extensive volcanic and tectonic activity during the flood. It probably was a dark, depressing world. The oceans would have been uniformly warm. 
The initial conditions would be established for a second, much lesser catastrophe, a post-flood transition to the present-day climate. This would be a post-flood ice age. What Ord has done, clever piece of work, is to note that if you had massive volcanic activity during the flood, which is clearly feasible, you would have had this following condition set up in the atmosphere, the opposite of a greenhouse. Talk about greenhouse today, keeping the earth in. Actually, it turns out, if you have dust and aerosols on the high atmosphere, you're reflecting the sunlight back. So now, all of a sudden, we're having energy losses. That's one thing to notice. At the same time, we're having that condition with a chilling of the air. How warm are the oceans? Where did the water come from that flooded the earth? Not just from the rain, but also from fountains of the deep. The earth is warm. The waters that exuded in the flood were hot waters. In fact, in Josephus and other passages in Jewish tradition, it says a lot of people were scalded to death by the heat of the water. So the oceans were left warm. The atmosphere is cooling. Now, isn't this an interesting situation? And it turns out, if you do the calculations, with that kind of a situation, a very warm ocean, with this kind of a situation in the atmosphere, so you get chilling, it turns out that the North American continent would look like this. These, are the, these would be the temperatures that would be encountered at the surface of the Earth. Notice differences from today's climate. In this case, warm air, all the way up into Labrador and Greenland. Why? Because all this water is warm. The oceans are all warm all over, the Pacific, the Arctic, and so on. Particularly, the Arctic Ocean is warm. So, what the Bible would present is evidence for not a cold ice age, but for a warm one, in which the oceans, <coughs> because they are warm, they are providing the moisture. Over the land, you have the chilling effect, because there's no water there to keep it hot, and you have this tremendous temperature gradient. Now, that's the gradient I, as a snow lover, always like to see the temperature gradients like that on the East Coast, because that's the sign we're going to get a northeast snowstorm. You don't get northeast snowstorms with heavy snow in very cold, dry weather. That's not when you get it. You get them when the temperature is just as close to freezing as you can possibly get it without having it trip over the freezing mark, and you have all the energy of the atmosphere in a very narrow band. Now, this is precisely the situation that Ord points to would have happened after the flood. In particular, the edge of the storm tracks would follow exactly this band, which coincides with the other map that I just showed you, where the edge of the glaciers are. So now what we have is a feasible model of how glaciation began. And then the arrow there indicates the storm tracks, the storm tracks dumping snow on the leading edge of that glacier, constantly building it up. During the summer, constant cloudiness, so you have minimized melting. And you have this adjustment that the whole world is going through. Of course, more and more air, more and more water gets trapped in the glaciers. It lowers the sea level. The lower sea level all of a sudden now exposes land bridges. Now we have a land bridge established between Asia and Alaska. And so you can go on and model these things which he has done. The other interesting thing, and I, po I point these out to you because um, this map is what would be the maximum glaciation. This map 
would be when the glaciers just started. And you'll see a very interesting thing about if you look at the difference between those two maps. It's normally thought, classical thinking, that the glaciers started the north and worked south. If you look at this map, that's not true. The glaciers started in the south and worked north. And the reason is because Hudson Bay is full of water and the water is warm. So the first glaciers actually started in this area, moved north as well as moving south. And there are indications, believe it or not, of scratches in the rock which show that the rocks, the glaciers were moving north. It's always been discounted because, quote, we know it can't happen that way. So here we have an amazing example, and it may be rough around the edges. But what I'm pointing out to you is not that this is a total answer. I am suggesting tonight that if people would submit their mentality to the scripture and consume from the scripture the data God has given us and think it through, we might have a lot less conflicts with scripture than we do. But we have this reticence. Always leave the scriptures to the last moment. Leave them over in a carefully sanitized compartment while we do our science and our history over here. Then we create this big edifice in conflict with the Bible and say, "Uh uh-oh, how did that happen? The problem is we're not bringing the data in at the first step from the scriptures. And here's an example of a guy who did. Now, isn't this amazing? I mean, this isn't fluky stuff. You can prove it. You input this to a computer model, and that's what you get out of it. And if a time on a time span, here's what it would have looked like. This happened during Genesis 10 and 11. During those years, from the time of Noah all the way down to the um, Shem, Ham, and Japheth dispersions, the ocean temperature, that's the key, because once the oceans cool down, now we no longer have a water source. I mean, surprising. I was surprised to know that the average temperature of the oceans today is only 4 degrees C. If you average all the water, including the water that's down deep, along with the surface water, on every place of the Earth, it only is 39 degrees Fahrenheit. That's a pretty cold ocean. Now, what Ord is saying is that the ocean temperatures right after the flood were as high as 30 degrees C. That means about 86 degrees. Now, this has a number of profound other effects that explain a lot of data. At this high ocean temperature, you have massive changes in CO2 levels. This begins to affect the whole carbon-14 dating system. This affects the deposition on coral reefs. This affects the, the uh, microscopic life in the sea. All kinds of things are disturbed by this kind of a profile. And interestingly, always disturbed such that they appear older than they are. And what he, what he says is that as the glaciers built up and built up and built up for the first 500 years, if we date the flood in Noah's time, this would be around Abraham's time. Exactly at this time, this is independently of the text, this time scale comes out of just the physics of the model. The ocean temperature drops, and at 700 years, we reach the end of the ice age. And the ocean levels level off to where they are now. Now, it's interesting, those disturbances of famines and everything else that's going on in Genesis occur right in this time interval, right at the end of that glaciation. What's also fascinating, and we want to show you one more thing, that once the oceans cool down and the storm tracks contract northward and to the South Pole, 
kind of hold that as a note because the notes that you have passed out tonight to read for next time will make mention of something that's going on in Antarctica crucial to the understanding of Ham, Shem, and Japheth's dispersion across the earth. So for now, just so you're set up for what's coming, let me just note that the growth of the glaciation in Antarctica is late. It is not the same as the glaciation over the rest of the world. And in particular, when it first started, vast areas of what we call Antarctica were free, ice-free, and could be mapped. One of the startling finds in the notes handed out tonight is, we think we've discovered the maps. Antarctica was mapped by human beings before it was covered with ice. When did that happen? On this model, we know when it happened. It happened between the flood and the end of the ice age, when navigation could get into those areas and map them. The bays are now all under sheets of ice. They haven't been mapped. They couldn't be mapped. The only way we know why they're there is because we can take radar and we can take infrared photography and we can map it. But these guys didn't have that. They did it because they sailed their boats in there. So we want to understand that it has a profound influence on in how we view history catastrophically. If I could summarize what we're saying here is that if you're to think biblically about history, history is... is so like an airplane, um, the old saying, I guess Glenn knows, that flying is, is a tedious boredom punctuated by moments of stark terror. History is that way. History carries along in sort of a steady state that lulls everybody to sleep and then suddenly it's pounded with these catastrophic events. The biblical view of history is that you have high energy events periodically occur. What's the one coming? The second advent of Christ. Now, are we to think that this is unprecedented? When Jesus talked about his second advent, what did he deliberately liken his second advent to? Several times in the Gospels. As in the days of who? Noah. Why would he have done that? Because it was the last great epoch in history where we had similar catastrophes that will yet to come when he comes back to this planet. So that's the biblical view of history. History is not a quiet, unperturbed sleep. History goes for a while and then suddenly things happen. All right, if you look in the notes, down on page six, the last full paragraph, several other things that come out of this. Much evidence points to the presence of abundant rain and even snow at the low latitudes of the Middle East during this period of history. Modern surveys, and this is factual, everybody knows this, it's just a question of dating. Modern surveys, as well as the ancient historian Herodotus, show that the Sahara Desert had great lakes with runoff. There are riverbeds in the middle of the Sahara Desert, which tells you that obviously the climate has changed in the North Africa very profoundly. The first pharaoh of Egypt got his name because he kept the water from flooding all the farmlands. There was so much water there. Africa was luxuriant at this time. What happened to it? Abraham notes that the Dead Sea areas, these are the verses I showed you, were well watered everywhere. By the time of Abraham's grandson, great droughts lasting many years uh, occurred in these areas. 
Post-diluvian nature presented, therefore, Noah and his family and animals a stressful situation, a uniquely stressful situation. And on page 7, I've diagrammed the duration of the patriarchs of Genesis 11. That's Genesis 11 is where we're getting our data. Now, if you look on that diagram, where it's between 300 and 400 up at the top, you do a little point with your pencil at 350. And then open your Bibles and look at Genesis chapter 9 for a minute. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 28, how many years after the flood did Noah live? It says 350 years after the flood. Now, if you'll write that point in the graph, the 350-year line, and draw a line from the point, if you've made the point between the numbers, 300 and 400 up at the top, if you make a line... Just sketch a line vertically downward to the bottom. Do you observe anything in the data that's happening there? Noah dies. Who's dying with him? How many generations ahead? Shem, Arphaxad, Selah, Ebor, Pelik. That's one, two, three, four, five generations. That's not his grandsons. That's his great-great-grandsons. Now, isn't this a... Uh, um, um, people look at this and they don't think what they're looking at. Think. Think what we're looking at here. Noah's dying at the same time his great-great-grandsons are dying. His great-great-grandsons are dying of old age. At the same time they're dying, their great-great-grandfather is just dying. What does that suggest about how they must have looked at the previous generations. I mean, if you're going to the, to the grave and the mirror, and your great-great-great-grandfather's still out walking the dogs, what do you think about him? Pretty wiry guy. Who sold him life insurance policy? The point is, that there must have been a profound thing happening here in history. This is the key to interpreting. If you don't have this chart, you cannot interpret history correctly. This is a diagram of what's going on at the rise of civilization. If that line that you drew down vertically at 350 years, from that line, if you drew another line down, say, at 450 years, the two lines, 350 to 450, would bracket a descending curtain on past history because everybody was dying out that knew where history started. After that, it was fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth generation removed. All of a sudden, there was this massive loss of memory. A collective amnesia descended upon the earth and people forgot their history. Amazing here. If you, if you think that that's unusual, think of this. Uh, if you look at today's uh, notes, the one's just handed out, uh, there's a quote on page 12 that I want to just show you because it's by Cyrus Gordon. Cyrus Gordon is one of the great scholars of the ancient Near East. And it's interesting. Look at some of the data he says where we've had minor curtains come down. 
I'll just read that quote. Follow me, please, in that quote there on page 12. Mankind often lapses into collective amnesia. The Egyptians forgot how to read their ancestors' hieroglyphics. The Persians lost their knowledge not only of the, uh, should be of, of the script, but also of the history. The Persians even forgot the names of Cyrus, Cambyses, and Xerxes for some strange reason. I have to ask Jeke about that. They lost the memory of their own founders. Couldn't remember them. And we Americans believe, at least tacitly, that white men did not come to America before Columbus's discovery of our continent in 1492, or certainly not before the Vikings, about 1000 A.D. And yet the Greek author Theopompus in the 4th century B.C. wrote of an enormous land occupied by a race quite unlike the Greeks. Three centuries later, Diodorus of Sicily described a great land with navigable rivers west of Africa discovered by Phoenicians blown across the ocean by strong winds. North America was known. North America was visited repeatedly. So the point is that going back to the chart on page 7, we have this, this, this hiatus, this thing that happened in ancient history that mankind hasn't, hasn't survived, hasn't recovered from. The Bible alone preserves memories behind that curtain and explains the curtain. For people, for example, if you drew that line from 450 down vertically, on the other side of that, that barrier between 350 and 450, if you were living then, your lifespan would be pretty much like it is today. Could you honestly come to believe that people were living 300, 500 years? It would take some stretch of the imagination to believe that. And it would seem strange. This is why we will believe a key to interpreting the mythologies of all peoples and the gods and goddesses that ruled. Those weren't gods and goddesses. Those were these antediluvian surviving and the immediate people after Noah. They appeared as gods and goddesses to these people because of their health, because of their longevity, because of their strength, their ability to survive, and probably their brilliance. The earth was populated by these people. Now consider one other thing in your mind's eye of imagination. Looking again at this chart, think about this. Noah lived up to that line of 350. Sight down the line and count the number of men who would have seen Noah. Count Shem, Arphaxad, said, Selah, Eber, Peleg. Maybe Peleg died before Noah died. Ru, Sarug, uh, Nahor probably died before Noah died. And Terah, Abraham's father. Abraham's father. Abraham's father knew Noah. Now, if it was true for three or four hundred years and the population of the earth is mushrooming and people are moving out into the continents, as you will see in the notes passed out tonight, and they literally are mapping the world, by the way. All continents were mapped. North America, South America, including Antarctica before the ice cap. If that was all going on, where was Noah? Now, nobody knows. But do you suppose he traveled? Do you suppose Noah and Shem and Ham appeared in different places? 
appeared in different places where different languages were spoken and their names would have been remembered in different languages, in different continents, by different cultures, because they visited. They could have toured the world. All during these 350 years, this is three and a half centuries, went by. Surely, if the rest of the world were being mapped and pioneering expeditions taking animals into various continents, we'll point this out, biogeography. Why are the marsupials in Australia? Is that a sign of evolution or is that a sign of colonization? If this was all going on and we have Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth visiting province after province, visiting Europe, visiting Africa, visiting Asia, visiting perhaps North and South America. What kind of a society is this? Does this shake you up in the way you're looking at history? It does me. It's utterly unlike what we've learned. It is totally different from every historical reconstruction outside of the Bible. And there's no arguing with this. This is the facts of Genesis 11. No arbitrary interpretation going on here. This is just what the text is telling us. And it's telling us, folks, History started out a lot differently than you guys are getting it. You're getting the wrong line about how things started. Why do we make such an issue out of this? Because we're building up in the ensuing weeks to the point when God rejects this. And what we want to understand is why did God reject these magnificent achievements? What went wrong when civilization began? Something profound was occurring, but something spiritually didn't happen. And this causes you, if you grip this thing and see why now God called Abraham out of Ur, and he called Israel into existence, and he called for missionary work, and he called for these elect people, elect out of this mass of geniuses that conquered the earth, that subdued the planet, Early on, they weren't eating bananas. They were building pyramids. By the way, they built the same kind of pyramid in this hemisphere as they built in the Eastern Hemisphere. Now, we have pyramids in Central America, and it's long been a problem. Who built the pyramids in Central America? Why are they built with roughly the same architecture as the ones in the Eastern Hemisphere? So the problem is then that we have a view of history that we as Christians must understand we have got to submit to the scriptures as we have never done. The church has not been good in this area. We have been careless. We have been sloppy. We have let the world take the initiative to set up their historical models. We haven't challenged them. We haven't done anything. And then we come in the back door with our little Bible and get laughed at. It's because we haven't been intellectually aggressive. We have let the world interpret the scripture instead of the scripture interpreting the world. Now further, we have to uh, rush today, but in pages 7 and 8, I point out the other thing, and that is the problem of, of the, the background of man. Um, in, on, on 2, on page 8, I mean, uh, par paragraph 2, section 2, human dispersion and migration. We point out the migration routes and those, those awful-looking maps that didn't come out. And I have one of those here that I want to point out something else, if I can find it. Something else is very interesting. Not only is the Ice Age 
explained nicely in the view of the scriptures, but something else is explained. If you take a map of the dispersion of men and you say, I believe the Bible, and therefore all men had to have come out of the Ararat area, notice what happens. On that diagram, uh, you can't read it because I did it in pencil, unfortunately, you have some, a map that looks somewhat like this in your notes. What I'm trying to do on this map is to point out a very, very interesting thing. If you look at the areas of the world where primitive skulls and body parts have been found, for example, East Africa, uh, for example, in South Africa, uh, Peking Man, here. Isn't it striking that those finds are all remote from Ararat? And isn't it interesting that in the Ararat area where we do have finds of early man, they're advanced. Why do we have this apparent decline in the periphery of the world and in the immediate area we don't have the decline? I think, again, the scriptures are pointing to something. That in fact, what has happened anthropologically and anatomically to man is going out in the middle of this Ice Age stress. These men that we find, these primitive men, because they lived for centuries, the effect of physiologic stress in their body would have been multiplied. They would have been healthy, but they would have been exposed to this tremendous climate, this adversity, lack of food, all kinds of physiologic stress. And it's no accident that in these areas where we would say it's the end points of the migration routes, those are the areas where we're finding evidences of primitive man. In other words, we're suggesting that the evidences of primitive man are not due to evolutionary transitions that are happening. It's due to the tail end of a deterioration process. Uh, Job speaks of cavemen. If you turn to Job chapter 30. We must make this quick because I am over my time for tonight, but I just did want to mention this to you. In chapter 30, verse 3, Job describes a people who from want and famine, they are gaunt. There's the physiologic stress. Who gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation. Who pluck the mallow of the bushes. Whose food is the root of the broom shrub. They are driven from the community. They shout against them as a thief. So they dwell in dreadful valleys in holes of the earth and of rocks. Caves. Among the bushes they cry out, and so forth and so forth. They seem to be a subset of the human race that were driven into the extremities of the dispersion. Perhaps they were being driven out ahead of the advancing columns of colonization. We don't know the details. I'm simply pointing out to you that when you get the data and begin to think seriously about the scriptures, we have powers of explanation that we have not noticed before. And that's why on page 9 I say human fossil skulls become more primitive in form the further their location from Ararat. Now isn't that strange? We're going to have to call it quits for tonight, but I hope we've ignited some thinking and provoked some thinking about what was going on in the days of these three sons of Noah. Uh, On the handouts for tonight, we're going to try to trace uh, for next week what they did. 
I would urge you, if you have a Bible dictionary, to look up the names listed in Genesis 10 and see if you can trace where these people went. What are these names mentioned in Genesis 10? Where do you think they went? If all the races and all the cultures came, what, what cultures, what parts of the Europe and Africa and Asia and Australia, what part, where did, who were they related to? Father, we thank you for the fact that you work all things after the counsel of your will and that when you commissioned Noah to go out and subdue the world, you meant it. And when you told us in Scripture that we have all descended ultimately from Adam and that you've separated the human race and you've given the boundaries, as Paul said in Acts 17, and you've done all this by one guiding principle that we might seek after you and find you though you be not far from us. We pray tonight that you would draw us to yourself through Christ. Amen. Those with questions, we'll have a little discussion afterwards, but I know the rest of you are late. I apologize. I'm five minutes behind, but didn't intend that. Okay. Yes, Uh, it turns out, actually, not. It, I think if you diagram it out exactly, he just kind of misses. He kind of misses <clears throat> that. But what he does coexist with, and this becomes an interpretive problem, Abraham meets a mysterious personage called Melchizedek. And there's a strong tradition in church history that Melchizedek is not the guy's name. That Melchizedek was his title. That literally in the Hebrew, Melchizedek is Melech, king, and uh, uh, Zedek is righteousness or the righteous king. And if that's so, then when we think of Melchizedek as a popular name, we're wrong. What Abraham's doing is he's saying, there's the righteous king. Unnamed, because everybody knew who the righteous king was. He was Shem. And it's, what's significant about that passage is that he is passing the priesthood, passing it on to Abraham. He's, he's passing this on. And Jesus takes his priesthood in the book of Hebrews, not from the Jews, a Levitical priesthood, but Jesus becomes a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, which links then Jesus back to Genesis 10 and 11. So, and the reason for that is, is because if Jesus was a Levitical priest, he was a priest of an order of a subset of the human race. Whereas if you take the, the Melchizedek issue, Melchizedek was representative of all Gentile nations. So when Jesus claims, therefore, to become a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and interestingly, in a very Jewish book, Hebrews, uh, it's, a, it's an amazing statement because it traces the fact that Jesus is a priest for all peoples. But why would he lend himself to, to a human like that? Well, the, the author of Hebrews shows you it's because of the way Melchizedek shows up without any heritage, without any lineage, and he's making out of the story and he's making the analogy that Jesus was eternal and so on. Genesis 11. The formula is so-and-so lived X years, he begat so-and-so and lived Y years and all the days of his life was X plus Y. Okay. Oh, should. Genesis 11? Oh, 
Oh, okay, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, Genesis 5 is where the X, Y, and Z formula is. X and Y, you're right. X and Y is in Genesis 11. But but Genesis 11 would have been interpreted because it follows Genesis 5. And Genesis 5 is X, Y, X plus Y equals Z. So if you have in Genesis 11, only a few chapters later, X, Y, it would be very clearly easy for someone to say, well, interpret the same way in Genesis 5. So that, the, the point there is that those specific years lock up the flexibility we have in interpretation. Yeah. They tighten things up. Yes, ma'am. Language? Not only like, well, not so much language that I understand, but how it would affect the pattern of travel. In other words, have, like your your findings for um, primitive man found in different areas. How would that change it? Because it started out eastward and then it became one language. Well, the the yeah the migration routes. It's true that incident happens in Genesis 11 was east of wherever the author was, because the author's writing they journeyed east. Well, that tells you right there that probably Noah was the author because Noah's homeland would have been Ararat. And so what was east of where he was is the plain of Shinar where that event occurred. We're not familiar because the Bible doesn't tell us about these migratory routes. That's something that God's word just kind of skips over and leaves. But the, there are several um, evidences for their existence, uh, which we, we present in these notes. And the other evidence is that when prophecy... See, the, reason, the other reason for a lot of this stuff is that prophecy of the future talks about um, Magog and all these, these nations. And we, we always want to say, oh, that's Russia, or that's somebody else. And what we do, every time we get into these prophetic passages in the future, we forget this passage. And the result is we try to politicize it. Now, Russia or the Soviet Union is a political entity. That doesn't correspond. The way the prophecy looks is the genealogical origin of the people of the prophecy. So when, for example, it's prophecies of the Jews, it's not necessarily talking about the political state of Israel. It's talking about the physical Jews. When it's talking about Gog or Magog, it's talking about the people who have followed a certain genealogical descent in history. So, however the migratory routes were, they were the pathways for the genealogical reproduction. Father, son, father, son, father, son. So you have this dispersion going out. Now, how the, the language dispersion fell in, I mean, all, there's so many details here that aren't given to us. They're left for us to kind of fill in. What we have to hold to as Christians is that the migration had to have been from Ararat. It wasn't from Africa. There's a lot of Afrocentrism. It wasn't from Europe. It wasn't the white man doing his thing. It was these Semitics, these forebears, these Japhetics, and these Hamitics moving out from the grounding of Ararat, and they went north, south, east, and west. 
Now, the group that went down into, Med, uh, into the Mesopotamia, that's the problem with Babel. And there's a big debate going on whether in verses 1 through 9 in Genesis 11, that was all of Noah's family that spoke one language, all clustered in that one area at that time, or whether that is a subset that of that they were all, everybody was speaking one language, but this event happened in a local area where you had particular apostasy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it probably affected it, sure, because God really sort of kicked and booted them out. And it was linguistically born in the sense that it probably was accompanied by vast amounts of strife. One of the evidences that I point out in the notes that I passed out tonight is the fact, the strange fact um, uh, that you have this passage about in, in Peleg's day and Eber's day, the earth was divided and so forth. And something went on there because if you look at the data on that graph, you'll notice that after after Ebor, suddenly there's a cut down and and the the Peleg from Pelagon in that graph they're dying off rapidly. So there's something that went on there. And yes. Okay. Well, all I'm saying is that there are strange things that go on here, and we would love to get into details. But all we can do is say. The scriptures give us a clear mandate of descent of all cultures out of this matrix. And it clearly says geographically where it originated. And like you say, obviously there had to have been dispersion out of the Mesopotamian Valley because it's clear in the text here. Yes. And this is why, if you look at Genesis 10 and you try to trace these sons, if you do the exercise of looking up the sons' names in the Bible dictionary or something, you'll, you'll, you'll notice a peculiar thing that after about four or five generations, the Japhetics are lost. It's almost like they, ne- they disappear into the wind someplace. And then the Hamitics, after a while, after the local intrigues of the Mesopotamia Valley, go, they go away. And then you're left in Genesis 11 with just one subset, and it's the Shemites. And then they go into vast detail. So it tells you that the scriptural story now, beginning in Genesis 10:11, now starts narrowing its focus. And now we're, it's as it were, we're leaving. We're letting those people go out. It's not denying they went out. See, well, our problem is just because the scripture doesn't say it, we forget that every nation on earth came out of this matrix. See, that's what we want to remember because it's vital when we start talking about missionary work, when we talk about the gospel going out. The gospel is not a white man's religion that is going into some third world that never heard it before. The gospel is a call, as a wake-up call, going out to cultures that have long since forgotten their own heritage. That's the way to look at it. And there are very few missionary organizations that have this. Thank God for New Tribes Mission. Of all the missionary agencies, at least they seem to have gotten their act together in Indonesia in that area because they have preached the gospel in such a way to connect it with the ancient tales of the culture to which they're trying to be missionary. And that way you avoid coming in looking like some disturbing European, Western type, trying to butcher some non-Western culture. 
And the gospel is bigger than that. And so that's why you, you get your get your feet oriented back here in the overall view of where history is going. And then to remember that history is viewed genealogically. And we learn our history differently, don't we? Because I know, you know, we go to school and what happens? You, you, you learn about 1,500 dates. This happened in this year, this happened in this year. And then you, you, you know, manage to pass it on, on Monday and then forget it by Friday, so the next group of dates. And this is the way we learn history. And it's tragic. Because by doing it chronologically, we lose patterns. And the Bible speaks of patterns. If the Bible does do anything chronologically, here's the way it does it. Such and such happened in the generation of. It would be like we would learn American history. Such and such happened when grandma... Da, 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 da. Or such and such happened when great grand, your great-grandfather so-and-so. In his day, this happened. Rather than coding it to a year. That's not to say the years aren't important. It's just to say conceptually that links you. It was your father. It was your grandfather. It was your grandmother that was there. It connects you. And that's the way the Bible teaches history. It's, it's, you're always connected to it. It's not some detached thing. Ooh, that happened in 1492. Well, I'm not connected to 1492. I'm connected to my ancestors who lived in 1492, but 1492 doesn't turn me on. So that's what the difference is in the biblical concept of history here. So it's just kind of setting us up for when the Bible, in, in the prophets, when you get into Micah, Isaiah, and these guys that prophesying, you say, what are they doing? What they are doing is they're prophesying to the descendants of these guys. See, that prophecy isn't just political entities. They're not talking about uh, the, the necessarily the nation Syria. They may be talking about the king of Syria, and then they'll be followed by certain names. And those names are the descendants of somebody who's a descendant of these guys in Genesis 10. So prophecy is oriented that way. And this is why in the book of Revelation, you have the 144,000 the witnesses. They're all tribes of Jews. Well, why is that? What is the tribes of Jews got to do with the return of Jesus in the book of Revelation? Because of the continuity of history. We'll see fascinating examples of that. Later on in the, in the Old Testament, you have this peculiar thing happen. Of all the tribes of Jews, there's one tribe of Jews that says their name shall never be erased from history. Now, you talk to the average Jew today, and he's forgotten what tribe he's in, or he can't find out what tribe he's in, except one group. It's always a subset of Jews that know exactly the tribe they came from. Anybody with the last name Levi or Kohen. Kohen means priest, Levi means tribe of Levi. So isn't it strange that of all the Jewish names, the only tribe that remains today in the Jewish last name is Levi. And that's the one the Mosaic Law said, I will never let that name go away from history. So everywhere you wear Levi jeans, you're carrying a Bible prophecy. Glaciers move, they still are in Alaska. And so it's just sheer weight. You get an expansion because you start to get accumulated mass and it has to go somewhere and gravity takes it. And what happens usually is they, have, they usually move in the, in the warm season because there's, a, there's Earth's heat that comes up in the bottom and you get 
liquid, and it's, it acts like a lubricant. I mean, you know, you see these pictures of these ice sheets in Alaska coming out, and then big cascading tons of ice falling in the ocean. I mean, it's pretty awesome to watch a glacier move. And sometimes they can speed up for reasons not well known, by the way. Not well known. Why you suddenly have glaciers speed up and then they slow down. It's not understood because you can't get in there to observe what's going on because the stuff is so thick. I mean, some of these glaciers are a mile thick. That's 5,000 feet of ice. Pretty heavy stuff. Why is it thought to be warmer? Well, just as they, various theories call for it to be warmer, but primarily because if you measure the Earth's crust, the further down you go, the warmer it gets. And when you get into the, you know, the larva and so on from, from volcanoes coming up from below, uh, it just, that's the measurements. That it's a lot of heat in the Earth. The question is whether the Earth is actually a kind of a plasma at the core, or what is it? And nobody knows because nobody's drilled it. It's just a lot of theories, bouncing sound waves through it and so on. But not the, nobody's, you know, dug a, not a Jules Verne, nobody's gone to the center of the earth to test it out. Yeah, Henry. Well, when you're, you know, I've, I've only been in a very mild earthquake, so I can't speak, but I'll tell you, when you see some of the power of these so-called natural catastrophes, I mean, maybe some of you have been in a hurricane just seeing what water, wind does to water, um, and then you see an earthquake where the whole ground's moving. And what's so scary about that is, is that you, no matter where you stand, you're moving. You know, I, I prefer tornadoes and hurricanes. At least my feet are on the ground. But when the ground starts moving, now you've got a real problem. And this, these kinds of things are the power of our God. And we've got to learn. And we don't worship nature. But when he wants to move the furniture, uh, he can do it very easily. And if you look at the Psalms, when this worship... Now, this is interesting. You often think of this as science and not connected to, quote, religion. But yes, it is. How many times in the book of Psalms do you read about he who moves the mountains? Just look it up in the concordance. Now, why is that? It's because if something's magnificent about a God who moves mountains. You know, sometime I've got to break out of all the trivia of my life and get the big picture of who it is we're worshiping here. And that's what we're trying to do here, is to get our minds purged of the... You know, every day our lives have thousands of details. And it's so healthy just to back off and let them move the Appalachians for, you know? I mean, that's our God. Yay! Let's go! And, and that makes you appreciate Him and, and feed upon Him. And that's why I think the psalm is so worshipful. Because they worship a magnificent God. Um, years ago, we did a study on Exodus 15. And I don't know how many of you get into music, but Handel wrote a piece of music built on Exodus 15. You know what Exodus 15 is? It's the hymn of the women who led a chorus 
when they were watching Pharaoh's army get drowned in the Red Sea. Now, it'll, it'll, it's not quite the nice, Christian, sweet little music. I mean, this is, these are women just relishing in the fact that an army has been crushed. It's, it's a powerful type of thing. Why? Because it's not because they're relishing that the blood and the corpses are floating around because they mention it. It's not that they're, they're, they're rejoicing over that destruction. It's rather they're rejoicing over the manifestation of the power of Jehovah God. That's what you know, turns them on. And that's a great worshipful and grand, grand, grand hymn in there. And yet, when do you ever, you know, where do we ever re- listen to this stuff? Put to good music. So there's a whole world of worship that's involved in this. So when we get out of these details, it's neat to come back to the fact that the God who you know, causes the ice, who causes the oceans to, to be warm, who, who bursts the fountains of the deep, this is our Savior. Ultimately, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Next week, I'm going to try to bring a copy of one of these maps so you can see it. Uh, I can't get into all the details. Uh, and again, I'm trying to be cautious. I'm not saying that all these are the final thing. I'm just saying there's a heck of a lot of evidence out there, folks, that has not been considered. And what we've done is we've been fed a line from childhood up about how things are. And that's the way the world says how things are. And you've got to be very careful because you, it poisons you. It distorts the way your eyes see the scriptures. You've got to ask the Holy Spirit to open our hearts to what is the scripture saying here. Tear away the blinders that we've been wearing from the world. The world's put our blinders. Why? Who's behind the world system? What is, his, what is his agenda? To diminish the glory and the grandeur of God. And how does he do it? Chip away a little here, chip away a little there, uh, get people thinking God's a bad God over here because after all there was no fall. God made things that way. The universe isn't abnormal, it's normal. It just reflects what a bad God made. All this little stuff that goes on. So that's the kind of things that you have to guard your mind and your heart. Yes, Henry. Oh, yeah. The thing of it is, just because a guy is a Ph.D. And, is, and skilled, I mean, these guys are very skilled in the languages, far more than any of us are. But that doesn't make their conclusions right, because they start off with the wrong starting point. 
Well, our time has, has gone, and we, we try to get out here by nine. But next week, if you look at the notes, continue just meditating on, the, on, on Genesis uh, 10 and 11.